You know, uh, this last week, Sheena was in my office, brought me some lunch, and uh, in my office, I have a picture of my dad, uh, who, taken about 20, 25 years ago, out at Cluskin Hill, dad loved to go camping, he loved to go barbecue and all this sort of thing, and, and there's just this picture of him sitting there on a picnic bench, uh, smiling, as he often did, as he watched his, his family around him. And Sheena said to me, do you think that life is harder now? Is life... I mean, was it just simpler and was it like easier when that time ago when we were that age and so on? And I thought for like about a tenth of a second and I said, oh, for sure, for sure. I think that 25 years ago, life just seemed a lot simpler, didn't it? And maybe you've experienced that, and I, I suspect that, that many would agree that many, we went back, you know, from we were 20, 25 years ago, things really were a whole lot simpler, and life now, it just seems like the problems seem to be bigger, and life and the world and the issues that we wrestle with are just that much more complex. It's little wonder that the, the rates of anxiety and the rates of depression are, are ramped up in our society, especially amongst the young people and teens. You know, I was reading an article, I can't remember where it was from, uh, just this past week, and it was talking about school absenteeism and how there's this radical rise in school absenteeism. This is it was US data. I don't remember all the numbers, but they were just saying, you know, we've got to figure out why in the world is this happening? Because the absenteeism level is such, such a rate, it's really affecting the educational progress of the kids. And as they, they talked in this article, several things, but part of it was there's so many kids are missing school because they're just anxious because they just can't handle what's going on because they feel like they're not connected. And, and it's just a, it's a severe thing that just seems that things just are more troublesome. The, the face that we face just so much more complex. Sometimes it's not even a major issue, is it? Sometimes it's just sort of the accumulation of, of life. On the, on the radio this last week, on a little program called The Cost of Living, they were talking about, somebody had done a study on what they call free labor. And what they talked about, how there's been this shift in North American society where labor goes from, uh, from uh, institutions and enterprises onto people. And they said, for example, think about self-checkouts. Think about your own banking. And there's this weight where it goes from a teller and from a clerk in the store. You've got to do your own checkout. You've got to do your own thing. And it's just, it works out in some ways it's a bit more convenient if you've got like two items as long as this lousy thing works all the time. It never works for me. I've always got a, hey, can you help me? It drives me nuts. And you know, when you go to the, the financial side of things, Sheena spent, I don't know how long this week because the sub-company bought out another insurance company and for her dad and, and, you know, she was supposed to get some card in the mail to give to the new pharmacy or whatever, but they never got in the mail, and then you're supposed to, okay, well, your phone, oh no, go online, it's easier online, you go online, well, you've got to use this card, gets caught in this loop, and of course, you can never, never, ever, ever talk to a person, I, I just go crazy, and it's not, it's not that it's a massive thing, but in this study that they did, there's just this accumulation of these micro-annoyances, micro-responsibilities that are constantly put upon us, and, and people... It just sometimes feels like it's just too much because we've got so little margin in our life that when something does happen, man, it just seems so overwhelming and the stress becomes such a burden. It's like, I just, I just, <laughs> I can't, I don't want to do this anymore. This sense that the challenges are too big 
and the resources are too scarce. Well, that's the experience that we're going to look at today of some of the disciples of Jesus. It's a very, very familiar passage of Scripture. If you've been around the Bible much at all, then you know it's true. It's the, it's the feeding of the 5,000 plus and Jesus walking on the water. And it has to do with these insurmountable problems and two little resources to actually deal with them. But you know, I was about halfway through, no, three quarters of the way through my study and my meditation on this passage this week. And I just was faced with this question. How big is my Jesus? How big is my Jesus? How much more is there to Jesus than I realize. How much more is there to Jesus than I count on? If I, I was thinking about, man, I should get a whole bunch of cut out Jesuses, you know, start with a little guy and go along bigger, 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 human sized thing, until we got to the end of it and just you see his big toe there, you know, or something. I don't know. But how, how big is my Jesus? And how much more to Jesus is there than I realize, than I live my life like? Especially when I'm facing the pressures of life, the difficulties of life, the struggles of life. How big is my Jesus? Really, how big is he? How much more does Jesus have for you and for me, for us, if we were to understand exactly how he is? So, so that's kind of the question that we're going to explore a little bit through this, this day. But I, I hope you take that question with you through the week. How big is your Jesus? Now, before we read the passage, it's critical that we get some background information or we won't really understand what's going on. So here we are. Remember, we're going through the Gospel of John. The first little chapter looks at the whole outline of the things. And now we're, we're working our way through the signs in the community, the, the book of signs, before we get to chapter 11, which is in the middle. And we've sort of already looked at how these Jewish institutions of weddings and the temple and rabbis and, and sacred wells are all pointing to Jesus. And we look, now we're looking at some Jewish feasts. And we looked last time at the Sabbath and Jesus healing on the Sabbath and how he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And this time time, now it's the next feast we're going to look at, it's the feast of the Passover. Now, here's what you've got to remember, okay, it's important you get this, okay, let's just kind of remember that story. So in case you're not familiar with it, the, the Jewish people had been enslaved in Egypt and they'd been there for like 400 years. It's kind of a weird thing that God would have his people be, be slaves for 400 years. But the Bible tells us that the reason that that happened is it says that the fullness of the evil of the people in the land of Canaan had not yet reached its height. In other words, here's the deal. God knows that the Canaanites, the bad guys, are getting more and more evil. They're sacrificing children. There's wars and all kinds of different things. And God gives them 400 years to get it straight. And he says, the reason that you're still in slavery and you haven't gone in there yet is that there's still a chance that some of them are going to turn around. So God's patience with these evildoers was for like 400 years. Problem is, it was the Jewish people that paid the price for that. They were enslaved. But you see, it's always been the case that the chosen of God carry the sins of other people. The chosen of God, to be chosen of God, I mean, it's great to be chosen of God as we are as followers of Christ, but what that means is that we are supposed to carry the burdens and the troubles and the difficulties of other people. It was true of the Jewish people, it was true of Jesus ultimately, and so it's true of us. To be chosen means that God has given us the responsibility to dive into the evil of the world and to sometimes pay the price for other people that they can be redeemed. 
And, you know, so it's not always a, a great thing. I was thinking about that this morning. Remember, have you seen Fiddler on the Roof? You know, Fiddler, is it too old of a movie now? You know, Fiddler on the Roof there, and there's that only Tevier. Remember, he just gets his bad news, and he says to God, I know we are the chosen people. Could you not choose other people for once? That's what it means. And so they've been enslaved in Egypt 430 years. And then what happens? Well, we know what happens. Moses comes, the ten plagues come, and all this sort of thing. And then finally, after the death of the firstborn, then the Pharaoh says, okay, uh, you can go. And so the, the Jewish people were led by Moses out. And then what happens? Then they get to the Red Sea. And what happens at the Red Sea? You pass through the Red Sea, right? So that the waters are gone. And then as they escape through the Red Sea, and then as the... Uh, Egyptian charioteers followed them through to slaughter the waters back in and they are destroyed and God's people are set free and then God has to take care of them in the wilderness and so he feeds them what? Manna from heaven, right? Bread from heaven, the food of angels like coriander and it's kind of sweet and all this kind of stuff and then they could only have enough for the day and you couldn't keep it for the next day. It was just day by day by day by day and there's no leftovers except for when they did it on the Friday so they could have the Sabbath without work. And Moses then became this great deliverer, the one that would rescue God's people from oppression of the powerful. And we get into the book of Deuteronomy, and Moses says, listen, the day is going to come when God is going to raise up another prophet who is like me. And that day will come and he'll be a great deliverer. And, you, and the Jewish people look forward to this day. And as, as their theology and as their history look forward, they began to see this prophet who would be like Moses as one who would be the Messiah, as one who would be the rescuer, as one who would in fact be the king of Israel. Okay? So you've got to keep all of that stuff in your mind as we read this passage. Because that's what's going on. If you forget that stuff, you'll miss so much of what's going on. Okay, so let's take a look at it. Uh, Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. He was down south around Jerusalem. Now he's gone back up north. That is the Sea of Tiberias. That's what the, the Romans called it. So it's double named. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs. Remember this whole thing? We're on the book of signs and miracles in the Gospel of John are called signs because it's supposed to be something else. Because they saw the signs that he performed by healing the sick, and so they follow him up. Then Jesus went up into a mountainside and he sat down with his disciples. And here we go. The Jewish Passover festival was near, okay? So they thought that the second Moses was going to come through in the, the Passover time. It's celebrating the delivery of God's people uh, by escape through the waters and the destruction of their enemies, okay? It's Passover. So the Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, who lived nearby, where should we get bread for these people to eat out here in the wilderness, out here in the middle of nowhere? He asked this only to test him, uh, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one of these people even to have a bite, let alone have their bellies full. And another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he spoke up, and this is what he had to say. He says, Look, I've hunted around, I've looked around, and I'm an adult, and I found this little kid, and I said, Kid, you're going to give me your lunch. I always thought that's kind of a mean part of the story, you know, poor little guy. Okay. Anyway, 
but how far will, and all it is is five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that go amongst so many? And so Jesus said, okay, no problem. Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and so they sat down, and there were about 5,000 men there. Jesus then took the loaves, he gave thanks, and he distributed those who, who were seated as much as they wanted. They filled their bellies. And he did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather up the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them up and they filled the 12 baskets, 12 baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet. Surely this is the prophet who was to come in and who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing what they intended to come and make him king by force, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Okay, do you see what's going on here? The people were kind of misreading the signs that had been given. They'd been following the signs. They, they saw that Jesus had done these, uh, these miracles of healing. They'd seen him empty out the temple and all of these different things. And, and they saw that Jesus was something big and something important, but they were misreading the signs. They weren't getting what it was all about. They just focused in on the sign, the act, rather than the person or the thing that the signs were pointing to. They were just focused on that sign. And they were just chasing after miracles of healing. I don't blame them. We can't blame them. I mean, I don't know about you, but I chase after miracles of healing for people all of the time. There's some of you that I pray for every single day. You can look at my prayer journal. I just pray, Lord, you've got to heal this person. They've got kids. They've got this situation going on. You've got to, you've got to do this, God. And so I don't, I don't blame them. <laughs> we want the signs of healing. I mean, it's, it's like Laurel said a couple of weeks ago. Sometimes, sometimes we need the signs. Sometimes we need this kind of healing. But they weren't getting what the signs meant. And so for Jesus, he said, okay, well, then it's time for another sign. Now, we can relate to Philip and Andrew because they identify impossible problems with insufficient resources. They're looking at this situation that they're facing. They've got to feed all of these people, and it's a huge problem because that's 5,000 guys, and then you've got women and kids besides problem, besides with them. Look, what a problem. How are we going to feed them? And then they look around, and what have we got to do with our resources? We've got some, but they are inadequate to the task. We cannot take this problem on. It is overwhelming. It is bewildering. It is discouraging. And how in the world are we going to get through this? I mean, there was 5,000 men, so maybe 10,000 people that was all said and done. And as these people arrive, uh, Jesus sees the problem. So he says to hometown boy Philip, hey, Philip, where's McDonald's around here? Where's the fast food places? How, how are we going to feed all of these people? And Philip's like, Jesus, you've got to be kidding me. We can't even give these people the, the little bit of a snack we give you for communion let alone something that's going to satisfy them out here in the middle of the wilderness. 
Six months' wages wouldn't buy enough to do that. It's just, it's just absolutely beyond us. And then Andrew pipes up and he says, well, you know, I've looked around and I've got these five barley loaves and two fish and barley loaves. I mean, even that's kind of meager. That was for the poor people. The rich people ate wheat roads. The barley loaves were kind of for the, yeah, it's not so good, you know, but, but that's, that's what we've got. I mean, it's a joke. It'll barely fill up this little kid. This problem is insurmountable. And our resources are too small to get through it. We, I don't know how we're going to do this. Their analysis was logically 100% correct. You see that? They were right. The problem was far too big for them to resolve with the inadequate resources that they had. Realistically, they didn't have what it took to get through this mess. They didn't. Absent Jesus. That's, it's like that for us sometimes, isn't it? I mean, realistic. We, we could even go and we can get some counseling and we can, you know, whatever the situation is and we can look around and we can lay the circumstances out and the, the person looking at it will say, you know, ah, it's hopeless, man. You, just, you may as well give up on that marriage. It'll never be resolved. Yeah, what that person did to you was so evil that it has, you'll bear the scars of what they did for the rest of your life. And I, I, don't, I don't know how you're ever going to forgive them for that. I mean, your life is wrecked because of what they did to you when you were a little girl. I don't know, but it's unrealistic to expect you to forgive. That financial challenge, you know what? There's bankruptcy laws for a reason. You're not, you're not going to make it. You, you are not going to pay your bills this month, let alone give to the poor. Look at all that you've got going on. You, your time and your energy and your health. You can't do it. You've got to quit. You've got to give up. You've got to give in. It's too much. That person that God brought into your life and their addictions, they've been through programs six times, man. It's, it's, <laughs> you may as well just give up on them because they are just too far gone. And sometimes those statements are 100% accurate, absent Jesus. They're not foolish statements. They're statements that are just, they're just the realities of life if Jesus isn't part of it. But all of a sudden when Jesus enters into these pictures... They become not insurmountable mountains. And our resources are not too scarce. They become opportunities to encounter Jesus in ways that we never have before. To learn about Jesus things that we would never have learned them about Jesus if we weren't in the midst of them. And I'm not saying that sometimes that just makes it all jolly and happy and so on because this terrible thing happened to you and you've got to forgive otherwise it's going to come. I'm not saying that it's not a big, it is a big deal and it is, humanly speaking, horrific and tough. And, but somehow in the midst of that, we can experience Jesus and his power and his faithfulness in ways that we wouldn't have before. As I, as I thought about that, I thought, man, my... My understanding of who Jesus is needs to be expanded so 
very much. In the face of the seemingly insurmountable problem with no resources, Jesus provides what is needed and an abundance for other people is left over. Twelve basketfuls. The twelve, that's because he was reconstitution. Israel, the 12 tribes. He's saying, look, this is, this is going to be for everybody. This is going to be a new story. What an amazing sign that Jesus is saying that I'm so much more than you, Alan, think I am. But even though they're in the midst of this sign, they still don't get this amazing sign. You see, for them, they thought the sign pointed to legions, prophets, and kings. It says there were 5,000 men. It's not because the women and children were not important and not counted. Here's why. At that time in Rome's history, a legion was 5,000 men. Different cohorts with 5,000. Basically overall. I mean, there's a little bit of variance, but that was kind of the standard thing. And so so what's going on is that the people are looking around and they're they're cluing in, man. Hey, this is Passover. This is the time when we celebrate that God delivers his people from an oppressing army. Hey, there's a time that's coming when one who is greater than Moses is going to be here and he's going to rise up and he's going to cause Israel to be great again. And he's going to take us through and he's going to destroy the army that's oppressing us just like he did the Egyptians. We see what's going on here. This Jesus, it's Passover and here's one that's like Moses and we got a legion of guys here and if we start taking on Rome up here then pretty soon Jerusalem's going to rise up. We're going to throw off the yoke of Rome and God is going to deliver us again. He's going to slaughter these Romans and we are going to be free and this insurmountable mountain is going to be traversed and conquered by the power of God as this new Moses who gives us bread in the wilderness like the first Moses, leads us on. So let's grab this guy and let's anoint him as king and we'll take on Rome and we'll kill them all and free all of our people from the oppression and Israel will be restored once more to a former glory and we'll conquer the land just like we did after the last or the first Passover because that's freedom that's victory that's what God wants but Jesus won't be subject to anybody else's definition of freedom and our definition of victory and our sense of how things should be And he understands that they wanted him to be the kind of king that he didn't want to be. Yeah, he was more interested, much more interested in being a saving priest and a conquering king. And so he withdraws to the mountain so they can't get this rebellion going. And man, that was a challenge for me. Because his plan, Jesus' plan for freedom, was exactly the opposite to Israel's people. Their view was, we're going to rise up as an army. And we're going to kill all these Romans. And we're going to destroy this army. And we're going to be great and marvelous and a fantastic nation again that will once again rule all of the nations around them. And Jesus' plan was, no, 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 no. You're going to love these Romans into the kingdom. You're going to die for these Romans 
into the kingdom. It's going to be the opposite to what you think. Because that's how big I am. And I got thinking about that and I thought, is my Jesus big enough in my life that when he does or he demands the opposite to what I want, the opposite for what I prayed for, the opposite to what I think is victory, when God does that, is my Jesus big enough that I can find joy in that? That I can find satisfaction in that? That I can find life in that? Is, is, my, is my Jesus big enough that he surpasses all of my wants and all of my ideas and all of my ideologies and all of, all of that stuff? Is my Jesus big enough that, that if he says no to me, I say, okay, okay. I will eventually learn to rejoice. Our theme for the year, even if I'm poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with all of you too. And so I urge you to rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. When Jesus says no, I'm going to do the opposite to what you think should happen. Is my Jesus big enough in my life that I'm good with that? How big is my Jesus? Bigger than my wants? Bigger than my ideas? Bigger than my prayers? How big is my Jesus? Well, the crowd's view Jesus had, had, had grown, there's no question. He all of a sudden had gone from being a teacher and a miracle worker to possibly the second Moses. But their view was still inadequate. They still weren't getting it. And so Jesus says, time for another sign. Because I'm more than those things. I am, in fact, the one who governs the ways and everything else. Let's take a look at this. Sort of pick it up where we left off, verse 16. So when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and they set off across the lake for Capernaum. And by now it was dark. Remember, darkness, nighttime darkness in the Gospel of John always means bad, always means bad stuff's going to happen. It represents evil, it represents nasty stuff. Okay, so by now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. And a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. This big storm came up. And when they'd rowed about three or four miles out, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were terrified. Frightened a little bit of a pansy word. They were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat. The other gospel writer said, first they thought he was a spirit. Then they said, okay, you can get into the boat here. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Boom, this miracle happened. And the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite side of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples. But they'd gone ahead alone. Oh, it's kind of weird. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread and the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and they went to Capernaum in search for Jesus. Let me give you the bottom line. The one who governs the waves and everything else is Jesus. Because you see, Jesus is not only the prophet that Moses wrote about he is also the God that Moses wrote about. And as you go through the Old Testament scriptures, there's only one person, 
Only one being that rules the waves. There's only one that can walk on the waters in the Old Testament. And that is Yahweh, God Almighty. The book of Job tells us that. It says this in chapter, in chapter 9. He alone, talking about God. He alone, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Only God can do this. Only Yahweh can do this. In Psalm 77, you can take a look at it. It's this, it's this psalm about the, the uh, deliverance, about the exodus, about the delivery from evil from Egypt that we talked about. And it talks about how he did it through the waters and how he rules the waves. God does this. And this is John saying, this is Jesus saying, you want a sign? Here's the sign. I'm the one who treads on waters. I'm the one who can govern the seas. I'm the one that can take you out of the midst of your thing and deliver you. Sometimes he says, you've got to just roll this thinking boat. Sometimes he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to deliver you. I'm the one who does that because I am Yahweh, God Almighty. And if the sign is not clear enough, verse 20, it's such a disappointment. Because what does it say in the NIV? It says, uh, it is I, don't be afraid. You know what it really says? I am, fear not. Who's the one that says, I am? Whose name is I am? Yahweh, God, right? Back in there, Moses, hey, who's, if you send me to get your people out of here, who shall I say sent me? Tell them, I am sent you. And Jesus, standing on the waves where only Yahweh can stand, says, I am. And then he says the words that the person that said it the most often in the Old Testament is Yahweh himself, especially during Exodus Fear not. I am. Fear not. How big is my Jesus? How big is my Jesus? I am. Fear not. Make no mistake, John is portraying Jesus as prophet, as king, as deliverer, as God himself, one for whom no challenge is insurmountable, one for whom the provision of resources is no trouble at all, one that the Passover is really all about, the one that gives us all the necessary food, the one that in like Exodus delivers through the waters, Jesus is Yahweh. And so when I got done this whole deal, I was sort of left with three questions for myself. Is my Jesus big enough and I don't mean is he big enough to do the thing what I want. What I mean is, is my, is my Jesus who I understand him to be? This Jesus in whose life I live, this Jesus who walks beside me, this Jesus who holds me, is, is my Jesus big enough? Do I, do I even understand a tenth of who he is? Or my little cutout Jesus, is he down right about here instead of just seeing the toenail of his big toe over here? Is my Jesus big enough? And since he isn't, how do I need to grow in knowing Jesus? What situations do I need to march through? What, what you know, what, I don't know what, what Lord, I terrify. Maybe, maybe it's facing some insurmountable problem before it'll grow. I don't know. 
And am I willing, am I truly willing to submit to his agenda? Even when I disagree with it. When it's the opposite to what I pray for. Is my Jesus big enough that I'm going to say, okay, I don't get it, I don't understand it, and maybe this story is bigger than my little life or whatever the deal is, I don't like it, but okay, Jesus, if that's the way it is, you're God Almighty. You are the great I am. And I will fear not. Is my Jesus, is my Jesus that big? Is your Jesus that big? Is our Jesus that big? Almighty God, Jesus. Man, I, I, I am so full of my agendas. And even when I'm recognizing you, I'm kind of like, kind of like these people have been fed. Oh, man, I, I kind of got a bit of a glimpse here. So here's my agenda. Here's what's going to happen. Here's how you're going to do it. Here's how I'm going to be victorious. You are so much bigger than that. And when I face stuff, that it just, it, it just feels overwhelming when I think about, you know, teenage, teenagers. Oh, man. Stuff they're facing. It, it can just be so overwhelming. Is my Jesus big enough? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Help me to see you more. Help me to grasp who you truly are. Help me to look at these circumstances that seem insurmountable, these, these things I pray about, and all too often I get, you know, honestly, I get disappointed because it doesn't look like I think it should look. Is my Jesus big enough? But I trust you that you've got some deal going that's bigger than me. I don't see, <laughs> I might not even like. Just as soon enemies get destroyed and be forgiven and loved. Jesus be big enough in our lives. Holy Spirit, you know, that, that takes your work because this is, this is beyond ourselves. Because, you know, Philip, Andrew are right. <laughs> this is too big. This is, you know, makes no sense. The crowd can be right. Man, if we just put some power in there, if we just pull our way through, if we just get enough people on side, but your way is so different. <laughs> be big in our lives, Jesus. Be big, be big in this fellowship. Be ever bigger. Let us remember that you are the great I am. And so we fear not. Through you we pray. Amen.